podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Monday the 17th of May and we're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider which allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix from outside the US, use your Now TV from outside the UK if Brexit is stopping you, also keeps your data safe. Check LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, eight games played at the weekend, an FA Cup final and seven Premier League games. Congratulations to Leicester City and Brendan Rodgers, the FA Cup winners for 2021. I thought a good game of football decided by, unfortunately, VAR. Now, the shame about that is what it's done is it's overshadowed an incredible goal. Yuri Thielemann's goal is one of the best goals you'll ever see in a cup final. It's probably the best cup final goal since the Gerrard goal against West Ham. A stunning strike from fully 25 yards out right into the top corner gave Kepa no chance at all. Leicester's game plan was very much to play on the counter-attack. That was their only shot on target in the whole game. Defensively, they lost Johnny Evans early on through injury. But I thought they adapted brilliantly. I thought they dealt really well with that adversity. They played good football. They kept their defensive shape. They were committed to how they wanted to play. I thought Chelsea probably deserved a draw. I thought they were quite unfortunate, obviously, with the disallowed goal. Ben Chilwell ruled offside by, I'm not sure, his shoulder maybe. He would end up bundling the ball into the net after a bit of a goal line scramble. It was ruled out. Chelsea fans rightly upset about it. I think even more upset about the handball and the build-up to the Telemans goal. Ayosi Perez, clearly the ball touched his hand as he blocked a clearance. Now, the rule does state, though, if it hits the leg first and then bounces onto the arm, it is play on. That was the rule. That is the letter of the law. So it does have to continue. Nothing could be done about the goal. Nobody's stopping that strike. I did see some... Uh, Chelsea fans suggest that Mendy would have saved it. Not a hope. You could have put two goalkeepers in. They weren't saving it. I did think Thomas Tuchel got his tactics wrong. I have to say. I thought he got his team selection wrong. The decision to play Reese James as a centre-back and 
Azpilicueta as a wing-back was bizarre. I'm not sure what the purpose of it was. Maybe looking for a bit more pace in around Thiago Silva to protect him. I thought Ben Chilwell had been better of late than Alonso. They both had good seasons. Neither great, both good. I thought Chilwell would have been a better choice to start this game. And I think he showed when he came on that he should have started. But the the big issue was starting Zayic over um, Kai Havertz. I, I just think that's a bizarre decision. Havertz has been really good of late. Zayic has been poor pretty much all season. You have to pick your form players. By picking Zayic, you make Timo Werner your nine. And Werner clearly isn't all that comfortable as a number nine. It's clearly not something he wants to do. Especially in that type of shape. That 3-4-2-1 where he is the lone front man. It just doesn't suit him. Chelsea had other options. If they wanted to play a striker in that, that shape, they could have played Oli Giroud. But the bigger issue is they left Tammy Abraham completely out of the squad. He picked two left-backs on the bench. Chilwell and Emerson Palmieri. And left Tammy Abraham at home. I just don't understand the logic. I don't understand Chelsea's management of Thomas Tuchel, of Tammy Abraham. Like, he wasn't having as good a season as he had last season. That's fair. But he wasn't being used nearly as much. But he still had 12 goals. He still had four goals in the FA Cup this year. He's barely played under Tuchel. It's pretty clear he's going to leave this summer. I think there'll be a lot of clubs in for him. But the decision to leave him out of the squad just made no sense, especially when his place on the bench has been taken by another left-back. Like, why do you need three left-backs in your matchday squad? It's not like Palmieri can play centre-back. The guy can't defend. So you've got three left-backs, all of whom are entirely attack-minded, none of whom can defend all that well. Chilwell's the best defender of the group, and he's, I mean, he's average at best, defensively. None of this should take away from what is a massive moment for Leicester City. Their first ever FA Cup victory. Their f- the f- fifth final they'd played. The first since the 60s. And the first time they've brought the trophy home. Great scenes on the pitch afterwards with the owner being brought down. Obviously, the owner whose who's father tragically perished in that helicopter crash. I think they deserve it. The family, the management of the club, I think they've done a tremendous job. Now, they've been held up as the, the shining example of how to run a football club. And, and there's some of that that's fair. But you do have to remember that this is a team that broke the rules to get into the Premier League. The championship had quite strict FFP rules, and Leicester flagrantly broke them. Uh, they've paid they paid a, a fine to get away with what they did. Um, but they've gone from strength to strength in recent years. You know, there is a question mark over their debt and the fact that it is mostly to the owners and what that would mean if the owners ever decided to to leave the club. 
would they write that debt off? It's unlikely. It's over 300 million. But from a footballing point of view, they've been very well run the last few years. After they won the title, they had some missteps. They spent some money badly, but they have turned things around very, very well in recent years. And, you know, you look at the the signings they've made. Most of them have worked to an extent. Castanier and Fafana brought in last summer. Fafana has been sensational. Castanier's had a, a bitty season because of injuries, but he's a good player who's versatile. Cheng is under on loan, hasn't really worked, but hasn't hurt them at all. Uh, the season before, they, James Justin was a, a, it's been a tremendous signing for them. AOZ Perez was, I mean, he's, he's a good squad player. That's what he is. They overpaid for him, but he's a good squad player. Yuri Thielemans has been a, a, a great signing. Obviously, they brought him in on loan the previous January. Made that deal permanent. He's been incredible. Him and Ndidi in midfield is close to as good as you'll find in the Premier League. And um, if the rumours are true and Bubakari Samare from Lille is on his way to join them, that's going to be formidable next season. You add Dennis Pryat into that mix. You add Hamza Chowdhury into that mix. Uh, Nampali's Mendy. That's a very strong midfield group. It'll likely mean James Madison moves into the attacking group and maybe we see something like Harvey Barnes from the right, Madison from the left, and Vardy or Ianacho up front. Um, it'll be interesting if they do bring in an Odson Edward. And, and maybe it's a thing where they have five midfielders for four positions or, or something like that and there's just a lot more rotation. But it's a, it's a tremendous squad they've put together. There's not many weaknesses left in it. You're really only looking... If if they're going to play Barnes off the right and Madison off the left, that solves the right-wing issue. You could probably do with a more experienced left-back, although Luke Thomas has done well. Another body at centre-back, though they do own Benkovic, who's a good player. Long-term success of the Schmeichel, long-term success of the Vardy. That's probably all they really need if Samari arrives and Barnes is to move to the right with Madison on the left bit more depth, maybe someone to back up Madison, someone with a similar stylistic profile, so that if he's injured, the, the shape and the style don't have to change. But they have built really well. Now, there's obviously been rumours that Brendan Rodgers could leave this summer if one of the big six comes in for him. And I think it's possible. I think the glamour of, of a Spurs would appeal to Brendan. The glamour of London. The glamour of a big six job. Obviously failed in his last big six job. He'll want another shot at it. If if Leicester get top four this season, he likely stays and takes them into the Champions League. If they don't, I think it does open a possibility that he could walk away. They've got a difficult run-in. They've got Chelsea next on Tuesday night, and then they play Tottenham on Sunday. Chelsea are obviously fourth, two points behind them. If Chelsea win, Leicester look likely to miss out on top four, assuming Liverpool beat Burnley, beat Crystal Palace. Leicester would be the ones who drop out. Because you would fancy Leicester, or you'd fancy Chelsea to beat Aston Villa on the final day, given Villa are in such poor form. And that would be tough for Leicester. That would be two seasons in a row where in truth, they really should have got top four and may not. Now, I've seen some debate over the weekend on whether 
Leicester are now part of the big six? And the answer is no. The answer is no, they're not. There is no measurable factor in which you can say Leicester City are a bigger club than Tottenham Hotspur. You can make arguments for Aston Villa or Everton being bigger clubs than Tottenham historically in terms of fan base. But when you look at recent growth and you look at how big Spurs fan base is, you look at the stadium and the infrastructure they have there, you look at the commercial revenue. And that's a big factor is how much money that club makes. The the gap from Tottenham, who are the sixth of the big six, to the seventh most profitable club in the league, which I think is Leicester at the moment, is stark. It's well over 100 million a year. Leicester can argue they're part of the top six. There's, and there's no argument that they're part of the big six. They can argue they're part of the top six. But unfortunately for those who like to disparage Tottenham, it's not Tottenham who fall out of that then. It's Arsenal. Because Arsenal currently sit ninth. Tottenham are sixth. Tottenham in all likelihood will be in Europe next year. Arsenal won't. Tottenham have had title challenges recently. Arsenal haven't. Tottenham got to a Champions League final recently. Arsenal did not. They got to a Europa League final and folded like a cheap suit. They've won some FA Cups. That's fine. But Arsenal have been dreadful for quite a while now. Tottenham have had two bad seasons. Before that, they had a whole bunch of good seasons. I think seeing Leicester be able to compete the way they have the last couple of seasons is a testament to what you can do if you are well run, if you do recruit well, if you sell players at the right time. They sold Harry Maguire to Manchester United for £80 million. They bought him for £18 million from Hull. They had Kagler Sionchu sitting on the bench ready to take over. Sionchu has been better than Maguire the last two seasons. They sold Ben Chilwell, who they brought through their academy, to Chelsea for £50 million. Young Luke Thomas looks a quality player. They brought in Castanier. They had James Justin sitting on the bench ready to take over. James Justin was tremendous up until he hurt his knee. Leicester are very, very clever. They're very good at having a succession plan in place. And if Brendan Rodgers does make a decision that he would prefer to move on, I believe Leicester will have a plan in place. You could see Graham Potter going to Leicester and doing very well. You could see Galtier from Lille going and doing very well at Leicester. Leicester will have a plan in place. There's no doubt about that. They will have a list of managers that they will be comfortable with taking over from Brendan Rodgers. I think Rodgers will be mad to leave at the moment because if you look at the profile of his team and the average age of his team, as I said earlier, with the, with the exception of Schmeichel and Vardy and Johnny Evans, obviously, these are all players at an age where they're going to get better. Fafana is only going to continue to get better. James Justin will only continue to get better when he gets back. Sayonchu will get better. Indeedy will get better. Tielemans will get better. Madison and Barnes will get better. 
You add Samari to that mix. You've got Benkovic, who's a quality player. Castanier and, and Pereira might be what they are, but they're both... Pereira is very good. Castanier is good. That's a team that is set to carry this level for the next couple of years. As long as you get the right guy in to be the successor to Schmeichel, who, by the way, was brilliant at the weekend. Kasper Schmeichel made some fantastic saves. And Jamie Vardy. And it, you know, obviously it always comes up about Vardy, about how his career path has gone. And it is incredible that he didn't see the Premier League until he was 27. He's gone on to win a league title, win an FA Cup now. The League Cup will complete the set for him of, of domestic, and, and I think you could well see Leicester have a crack at it next season. I think Rodgers will obviously want to do better in Europe than he has done in previous years. Very, very poor European record. Did okay this season, but, I mean, they were playing pub teams in the Europa League. The first decent team they played was uh, Slavia Prague, who knocked them out. So that's an area Brendan needs to improve on. That's an area Brendan needs to massively improve on if he wants to be considered a top manager. Uh, we, of course, saw the usual parade of British journalists wanting to you know, put him into the mix with Klopp and Tuchel and people like that. And fair play, he, he got the win over Tuchel at the weekend, but he didn't outmanage him. Tuchel got things wrong. The game was still incredibly even, and it took a world-class goal to separate the teams. But Rodgers needs to do better in Europe to be considered a top manager. You can't be as bad as he's been in Europe. Unless you're winning domestic titles, which, you know, he hasn't done in a major league. He won things in Scotland. Neil Lennon won a bunch of stuff in Scotland. It means very, very little. Uh, Premier League-wise, we did have uh, seven games over the weekend. Newcastle 3, Man City 4. On Friday night, this was a cracker of a game. Newcastle went 1-0 up. Emil Kraft with a header from a set piece. Really powerful header into the net past Scott Carson, who made his first start in the Premier League in about 10 years, maybe. It's been a long time since Scott Carson played in the Premier League. It was great to see Pep give him his chance. He's obviously been there the last two seasons on loan from Derby. That's what you call, you know, getting that jump. Uh, he He should have been in a relegation slog in the championship with Derby. Instead, he's winning Premier League titles with Man City. Um, great to see him get a start. And he's, he's obviously, you know, he's a likable guy. He's had a good career. Um, he he deserves, you know, a little bit of recognition. Ferran Torres made a 2-1 just before half time with a really inventive kind of flicked back heel from about 12 yards out from a set piece. Really good goal. You thought that was going to be it, but six minutes into added time at the end of the first half, Jolington gets dragged down. Initially, it was ruled out for offside. Nothing was given. Uh, it was an offside to City. They checked the offside. They realized that St. Maximum had been onside. They rolled it on and saw that Nathan Aki took Jolington's feet from underneath them. Penalty was given. Jolington stepped up, dispatched it brilliantly. 62 minutes, Joe Willock goes into the Manchester City box. He gets pulled down. Bizarre decision for Willock to take the penalty when Jolington has already scored and is still on the pitch. Willock takes the penalty. 
it's saved by Carson, but Willock manages to find his feet, knocks the rebound in, and all of a sudden it's 3-2 to uh, Newcastle, and you're thinking, maybe they have a chance here. But in quick succession, 64 and 66, Ferran Torres makes it 4-3 to City. The first is a tap-in after a nice move. The second is not a tap-in, but, you know, he's eight yards out dead in front of goal. He does well to react. Joe Canseo's chance, Joe Canseo should add, scored the first first goal for uh, City. Deflected chance. This one hits the post, bounces back, and Torres tucks it away. A really good hat-trick for Ferran Torres. Good for him to start finding some form, getting some some confidence, getting goals under his belt, because you do feel like next season he could be a more important player for City than he has been. It was nice to see Newcastle play some attacking football. It was nice to see Steve Bruce, now that they're safe, be a little bit be a little bit more open to allowing his team to go and play some football. Uh, played with proper wing-backs, let Emil Kraft carry the ball a little bit. I thought the midfield of, of Willock, Shelby and Almiron caused, caused City some problems. And then St. Maximum and Jolington, they combined well. You are missing Callum Wilson there and the threat that he provides. But I thought Jolington, in, in credit to him, had a decent game. So obviously both of these teams have two games left in the season. Uh, nothing to play for really for either. City are top, they've won the league. Uh, they're 13 points clear of Manchester United. Their last two games will be Brighton tomorrow. That's away. And then Everton at home next weekend. The big focus for them, we know, May 29th, Champions League final in Porto against Chelsea. That's where their focus is. I think you'll see Pep continue to rotate and rest players. He'll want everybody fit and ready for that Champions League final. He will want to be at full strength. Thomas Tuchel already has two victories over him and Pep will not want it to be a third. Aguero and De Bruyne currently out injured. The hope is that both are back for that final. That's If De Bruyne doesn't play, that is going to be catastrophic for City. He's the best player they have. I think he's at least... At least top two in the league along with Van Dijk. Aguero, it would be horrible if his City career ends without him getting to play some part in the Champions League final, even if it's off the bench. Given what he's given to that club over the past decade, he has to play. He has to play. He has to find a way to get himself fit. Even if he's 50% fit, he has to be on the bench. He could be the guy that separates them from Chelsea. He's the guy that got the goal that set all this up. He won them their first league title. It would be quite fitting if he played a part in winning them their first Champions League. Uh, For Newcastle, they have also obviously two games remaining. Uh, They're currently 16th in the league. Their last two games will be Sheffield United at home on Wednesday night. That's a game they should win. And then Fulham away on the final day. And again, given how Fulham have been, Newcastle should win that game. So they could finish the season on a bit of a high. They got a draw against Newcastle. They lost against Liverpool. They lost against Arsenal fair. They went and they beat Leicester. They gave City a, a really tough game. They could go and win the last two. It would give them some confidence. 
it will be interesting to see what the managerial situation is there in the summer because uh, obviously I think the fans would quite like if Steve Bruce would leave their club. But why would he unless he's asked to? Um, Burnley nil leads United four on Saturday. Shocking, to be honest. Absolutely shocking. A very even game. Possession was about 50-50. Shots the same. Leeds had six shots on target. Burnley had four. The difference being, Bailey Peacock-Farrell, who, unfortunately for him, every time he steps in this season for Nick Pope, has had a shocker. Um, whereas at the other end, Ilan Melier made three really good saves. Two of them I would class as borderline world-class saves. Uh, and another really good one. I thought he had a great game. And Leeds were just ruthless. Uh, Matthias Glish scored after 44 from the edge of the box. Jack Harrison made a two on 59, deflecting home a shot from Alioski. And then Rodrigo on 77 and 79 wraps it up, makes it comfortable. The scoreline did flatter Leeds, I felt. Um, I thought, you know, 4-2 would have probably been a fairer result, fairer reflection. But like I say, Melier made those great saves. Will be interesting to see if Nick Pope is back for the Liverpool game in midweek. He has a niggly knee, according to Sean Dyche. Uh, Dyche did say, though, he's got a better chance of making it for the weekend's game as opposed to the midweek game. Now, in midweek, they obviously play Liverpool. And then next weekend, they finish their season away to Sheffield United. Again, that will be a game they will expect to win. Um, for Leeds, a tenth in the league, they're now four points clear of Villa. So it is looking like a good bet that they will finish in the top half. 57 goals scored, which is very, very impressive. I think it's the seventh highest in the league. It is Man City. Man United, Leicester, Liverpool, Tottenham. Sixth highest in the league. The sixth highest in the league. Better than Chelsea, better than West Ham. That's really, really impressive. And they do have one of the worst goal differences in the league, but that's neither here nor there. We focus on the positive. Back-to-back wins and looking like they should get a top-half finish. They've got Southampton away next. That's tomorrow. And then West Brom at home next weekend. So all they need is one win, which will guarantee them uh, a top-half finish. If they're feeling ambitious, though, they have a real shot at jumping Everton. Because Everton have Man City as one of their two games. So you would expect them to lose that. And if Leeds could win both, Leeds have a one-goal goal differential against Everton, a one-goal goal advantage. Um, they could freely jump Everton. They could potentially jump Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, if they're feeling ambitious, there is a top-eight finish potentially on the cards. But look, any top-half finish as a newly promoted team is, is brilliant. And then, obviously, the trick is repeating it next year. You'll have second-season syndrome. It is a real thing. But I think Leeds will be smart enough in the transfer market I think Bielsa's prepared enough that he will know what he wants and what he needs to do. Um, moving on, third game of the weekend in the Premier League, Southampton 3, 
Fulham won. Southampton with a badly needed win. Che Adams made it 1-0 on 27. Uh, clever little finish from about five yards out. Ball was a little bit behind him, but managed to scoop it into the net. Nathan Teller with his first senior goal for the Saints on 60 after good work from Kyle Walker-Peters. And then Teller sets up Theo Walcott to make it three. Uh, Fabio Carvalho had scored between the Teller and Walcott goals. He is apparently the next big thing for Fulham. After Cessnion and Harvey Elliott, apparently this is the next one. He's very, very highly rated among Fulham fans, and he's going to play a big part next season because they're obviously going to lose quite a few players. Looking at the lineup at the weekend, they will lose Ariola, they will lose Anderson, they will lose Ola Aena, they will probably lose Zambo Wangisa, though they do own him. Uh, I would imagine they will lose him. I don't think he will be willing to go to the championship. He wasn't the last time, and they loaned him out. I think they will have to sell him this time. Uh, bizarre formation from Scotty Two Coats this weekend. Went with uh, wingers as wingbacks, four central midfielders, uh, two centre-backs, a right-back, and another winger up front. Just no balance at all to how they really played. Uh, wasn't overly impressed with... Uh, Scotty Tucoats wasn't impressed with Fulham's effort or energy in this game. They look like a team that are gone down and have just kind of given up. Alex McCarthy restored in goal for Southampton. Didn't have a whole bunch to do. Didn't have a whole bunch to do at all. Made two saves. Saw one going over his head. Quite an easy day. Great win for Southampton, though. They needed this win. Their form, obviously, since Christmas has been a train wreck, but that is back-to-back wins for them now. So hopefully some confidence-boosting uh, performances there. Wins over Crystal Palace and, uh, and Fulham. They have another home game to come. They play Leeds tomorrow, obviously. And then they've got West Ham away at the weekend. So look, they'll, they'll look at that Leeds game and think that's a game they can get something from. West Ham's going to be difficult, but, you know, Stranger things have happened in West Ham aren't in particularly good form right now. For Fulham, they clearly just can't wait for the season to be over. Uh, they will play Manchester United tomorrow, and then they will play Newcastle next weekend. It, it doesn't look good for them to even finish 18th, because with the way West Brom played yesterday, they look far more likely to win a game and you know not be in the bottom two. It, it is irrelevant in the bigger picture of things, but a little bit of confidence heading into next season wouldn't go miss for either team. Um, moving on, final game on Saturday then was Brighton 1, West Ham 1. This was a good game. This was a game I really enjoyed. Um, I thought it was a really well-balanced game. And... Overall, I do think the draw was the fair result. Both teams had some good chances. Craig Dawson missed a good chance. A brilliant Ben Ram across. Dawson should have done better. Johan Bakesh rounded the goalkeeper at one point for Brighton, but the angle was too wide. I thought West Ham's defence looked a little bit suspect at times, but they did a good job until Danny Welbeck ran away from them in the 84th minute and beat um, Fabianski in the 1v1. But Ben Rama, with his first goal in the Premier League for West Ham, with a brilliant goal on 87. An absolutely brilliant goal. He's 20 yards out, 
Lovely bit of curl. Just kisses the inside of the post and into the back of the net. One of the best goals you'll see all weekend. One of the best goals you'll see all month. Um, he's a lovely player. He really is a lovely player to watch. He's got great balance. He's very intelligent. He's got a lot of tricks, but he puts in the graft as well. He's not a player who's scared of putting in some some decent effort. Um, West Ham quite lucky to have him. Will be interesting to see what they do with regards to um, to Lingard in the summer. His form has obviously dropped off a little bit in recent weeks. Didn't have much of an impact in this game. But he obviously had a great impact when he first arrived. Was in probably the best form of his career. And has probably pushed his way into the England squad. Which is a little bit unfair. Like that you can have a 10 game run. And that will get you to European Championships. Whereas there's been, And you've been dreadful for the 18 months before that. Whereas there's been lads who've been really good for the 18 months before that. Maybe have a little bit of a sticky patch. And they'll probably miss out because Southgate's a weird, weird man. Um, yeah, West Ham drop in the table, unfortunately for them, to seventh. And their Champions League hopes are, yeah, they're done. They're not getting Champions League. They will probably end up in the Europa Conference League. That seems the most likely thing. Uh, West Brom away on Wednesday and then Southampton at home. They are both winnable games. If they win both games, they'll end up on 65 points. There's very little chance that none of Liverpool or, sorry, neither of Liverpool or Chelsea go beyond that. So it will be Europa League at best, but more likely, I think, Conference fo- Conference League football for West Ham. Any European football is fantastic for the Hammers, though. Considering what was expected and what they've done, it is three defeats in the last five that's kind of done them in. But Declan Rice's impact just can't be understated. When he went out, the team just wasn't the same. That that pairing of him and Suchek is what has made their season such a success. As long as they keep those two together and continue to build, I think there's... There's a lot of good to be done at West Ham. They've got Ben Rama, Fornals, Bowen, Antonio. If you could add one more to that mix, another another number nine, a goal scorer. If they could find the money for Tammy Abraham, he'd be a, a tremendous signing for them. They probably need to address left. Well, they definitely need to address left back. I think they need an upgrading goal. And you'd like another centre back. You'd like a, a higher calibre of centre back to play with Issa Diop. Craig Dawson's had a fine season, but there's been moments where he's reminded us that he's Craig Dawson. Ogbonna, unfortunately, just the injuries he can't be relied on. And Balbuena, I mean, there's talent there, but he's just he's one of those defenders where he can be absolutely fine for 89 minutes and then just do something completely bananas that there's no logical explanation for and make a hames of everything. So he's not one you really want to be relying on. I think they're going to need to do some work in the summer, but they have a good basis to build from. And as I've said repeatedly on the show, David Moyes is the manager of the year. Don't don't tell me about Pep. Pep has won titles before. That's a team that should win the title. And with Liverpool having the terrible season they had, City had no competition for the title. Thomas Tuchel's been in the league half a season. I don't hear about Brendan Rodgers. To have that Leicester team in the top four, given 
Chelsea season, Liverpool season, Spurs season and Arsenal season, it's the minimum requirement for them to get top four. Winning the FA Cup is great, no question. But Brendan Rodgers has just done what he should have done. Uh, it's Moyes or it's Bielsa. Actually, just before I forget, the FA Cup, I do have a gripe in that it just didn't feel special enough. Now, not to Leicester, and I'm sure they won't care about anything else. But as a neutral fan watching, because there wasn't like a full morning of build-up to it, because there was other games going on, it just doesn't feel the same. They're diminishing the FA Cup. And I think next season it's due to go to, other than the third round, it'll be played midweek. And then the final will be done like this. I've said it before, the FA Cup final should be the only game on that day it should be the last game of the English football calendar. The Premier League and the playoffs should all be done in advance. There's no reason they can't be. No reason at all that they can't all be done in advance. The FA Cup final should be the last game played. It should be a 3 p.m. kickoff of this 5 o'clock nonsense. It's something that should be cherished and held on to, and instead it's been diminished. Like I say, Leicester won't care and shouldn't care. Their fans should be thrilled. But as a neutral, FA Cup final day should be special. Should be a whole morning of build-up. Should be doing documentaries about teams that won it in the past, about the history of the Cup. All this kind of stuff could be done. A couple of hours studio build-up. Different people telling their stories about their experience of the FA Cup, their memories of the FA Cup. Make it really special. Go and speak to teams that have done well in that year's competition. Like a team like Marine this year, you know, who got to the point where they were playing Spurs. That type of thing needs to be really front and centre on Cup final day and build it up to the final. Not just stick it on in the middle of the Premier League games. Uh, we jumped then to Sunday. Crystal Palace 3, Aston Villa 2. Hodgey taking the reins off, allowing his team to go and play good football, picking five attacking players, no less. Five. Uh, and Palace played good football. This was a good game. Uh, John McGinn made it 1-0, passing the ball beautifully into the back of the net from about fifty, well, about 20 yards. Left-footed, ball coming across his body, just passes it right into the bottom corner. Tremendous goal. Christian Benteke playing for a new contract, having a bit of motivation at the end of the season. Palace should not fall for this and should let him go this summer. I know they paid a lot of money for him. It doesn't matter. Let him go. Anwar Al-Ghazi answered only two minutes later, made it uh, 2-1 to Villa. That was how it stayed until the 76th minute when Wilf Zaha cut in from the left. His shot took a deflection and found its way into the back of the net. And then Tyreek Mitchell uh, with what I can what I can think of as only the second goal scored deliberately with a shoulder in the history of the Premier League. The first obviously been the Balotelli one against I want to say Norwich. But um really nice to see Mitchell get his goal. I think his first goal for the club. He's a very talented young player. He had a good game at the weekend and Villa should be pushing to make sure they keep him. Or Palace rather should be pushing to make sure they keep him because there's a lot a lot of good to come from that that young man. Um, like I say, this was a fun game of football. It was nice to see Palace take the reins off. 
Uh, they hit the post. They hit the crossbar. Um, Emmy Martinez made a couple of good saves. Villa, to their credit, kept going, had some good chances themselves. It is notable, though, that even with Tyron Mings back, the other Tyron Mings, that being Courtney House, uh, is similarly poor. Similarly poor. Please, whatever you do this summer, Dean Smith, buy a proper partner for Esri Consul. Just buy a proper partner. He deserves it. Emmy Martinez deserves it. Stop playing championship caliber centre backs. Just stop. Because it is why you have collapsed in the second half of the season. Uh, Villa are now 11th and look likely to stay 11th. And look, 11th is, is much better than 17th that they finished last season. They've got Tottenham away and then Chelsea at home in the final day. You're not going to back them to win either game. Grealish is back, but he's coming off the bench. Um, He hasn't really made much of an impact. He doesn't look fit. It kind of looks like he's been rushed back because the Euros is coming up. He probably could have done with having these games off as well. But he is back and it is what it is. For Palace, Hodgy has hit the magic spot. He likes between 43 and 45 points. He now has 44. It is utopia for Roy. It may well be the last win of his career as a Premier League manager. They've got Arsenal at home next and then Liverpool away next weekend. So two difficult games. You wouldn't really expect them to win either, but they could beat Arsenal at home. They'll have fans there, which is going to be it's going to be impressive. There'll be about 6,500 uh, QPR apologies, Crystal Palace fans. Palace fans make a lot of noise. They make a lot of noise. Selhurst Park is a great place to go. It's an old school ground. It has just a, a, a smell of the 80s about it. And those fans make an immense amount of noise. So maybe that will will inspire them to win over Arsenal. If it does, 47 points, I mean... Roy's probably having a trophy crafted for himself. He gets 47 points. With the injuries they've had this season, maybe he deserves it as well. Um, next up then, Tottenham 2, Wolves 0. Run-of-the-mill performance from Tottenham. Very, very comfortable victory. Uh, they dominated the game. 24 shots, 13 on target. Really kept Rui Patricio busy all game long. Probably should have scored another couple of goals. Wolves' defence was just an absolute calamity from start to finish. Whatever glue Nuno sniffed that made him think Connor Cody could play in a, in a two-man centre-half pairing exposed once again, just the guy can't play in a back, back four. He can't defend. Gary Neville was euphoric after Cody made two goal line blocks. One of them that hit him, he didn't know anything about. And the other one he actually took out of the arms of his own goalkeeper. Uh, but then Cody gets badly exposed on both goals. Just he, no pace, no possession, positional sense. Can't read the game properly when his, when he's turned. If everything's in front of him, he's fine. But when he's turned, he's absolutely all over the place. And Roman size is not much better either. It's They're both midfielders who were converted to centre-backs and it's fine in a back three because they just make it work. It's just 
they've been awful. I, I, there's, there's no more to say. They are just an awful pairing. Sice will probably leave on a free this summer, and if they've any sense, they'll look to replace Cody. He's just not very good at all. Um, but I, I did think Spurs played really well. I really liked how aggressive they were in their lineup. Lacelso and Heusberg as a midfield pairing. Bale, Ali, Son, and Kane. I would have preferred it if it was Tangai and Dembele instead of Lacelso, but you can't have everything. Uh, Jaffa Tanganga impressed me at right back, and if he continues to play that way, he might solve Tottenham's right back issue. He's a very talented player. He's nominally a centre back, of course, but he's got the pace and athleticism to play right back. And if he keeps playing like he did did in this game, maybe that's just where he stays. Uh, Alderweireld and Eric Dyer are an issue, but they got through this game. Then he made. One mistake between them uh, that almost led to a Fabio Silva goal. It was a good, aggressive performance from Tottenham. Kane could have had a couple more. Bale unlucky to hit the post. Deli Ali unlucky to hit the post as well. So a, a good performance by Spurs, a good win. Keeps them in the mix for Europe. They jump up to six ahead of West Ham. They have the exact same record, 17 wins, 8 defeats, sorry, 8 draws, 11 defeats. They've got a better goal difference. They're uh, 12 goals better off, more attacking, 7 goals, better defensively, 5 goals there. Uh, 12 goals overall, 59 points, 3 wins out of their last 4 under Ryan Mason. They have Villa at home and then Leicester away. So they're, they're not easy games at all, especially that Leicester one's going to be very, very tough. but. I mean, there's there's four points there. There is four points there, and I think four points will be enough for them to uh, to get sixth, and that that'll be a Europa League spot for them. So after everything they've been through, I think they'll take a Europa League spot, and ho- then they just have to hope with Kane that he sticks around. Uh, that is the big question mark. Going to skip the next game and jump to the last game, and then we'll work back to the other one. Uh, Everton nil. Sheffield United won an embarrassing result for Everton, an embarrassing performance for Everton. This is not like a thing where Sheffield United turned up, scored a goal, parked the bus, and just held on. They went 1-0 up, 17-year-old Daniel Jebison scoring after seven minutes. And then they matched Everton pretty much the rest of the way. Now, Aaron Ramsdale made some very good saves. A really good double save from Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin, though Calvert-Lewin really should score. He's far too nonchalant about the chance. But Jebison had a good chance. McGoldrick had a, a good chance. One of the fullbacks, was it? It must have been Ender Stevens. Yeah, it was Ender Stevens had a good chance coming down the left. John Fleck worked the keeper once or twice as well. This isn't like Sheffield United just turned up and parked the bus and said, right, we've got our goal and now we're going to sit back in. They properly took the game to, to Everton at times. I thought Michael Keane had a really poor game. I just think positionally he's a bit all over the place. And because of his lack of pace, he makes Everton play deeper than they should play. And because... Alan and De Curry are aggressive midfielders and want to push on and press and win the ball high up the field, create turnovers. 
it leaves quite a big gap because Keane wants to hold a, a deeper defensive line. And when he does go a little bit higher, he gets exposed in behind. And that happened a couple of times he got exposed in behind. Jebison almost got a second goal. I think they would have been so much better off if Mason Holgate had played right centre-back. Seamus Coleman had played right back where he belongs. And say Bernard or Alex Awobi had played on the right wing. Everton's home form is just baffling to me. Absolutely baffling. I cannot work this team out at all. So they're currently eighth. Their last two games are Wolves at home. It's a game they should win. Wolves are poor. And then Man City away. Now that's a game you'd expect them to lose. But it all depends on where City's focusing. If City have one eye, or both eyes rather, at that time on the Champions League final, and Pep just rolls out a bunch of players that you know aren't going to play in the Champions League game, maybe Everton can get a win. And they've been really good away from home. I say they should beat Wolves, but it's at home. And their home record is a disgrace. They've played 18 home games. They've only won five. Drawn four and lost nine. And it's not like all the top teams have gone there and won. They lost at home to Manchester United. They lost at home to Leeds. They lost at home to West Ham. They lost at home to Newcastle, who were dreadful at the time. Lost at home to Fulham, relegated. Lost at home to City. Lost at home to Burnley. Lost at home to Aston Villa. And now Sheffield United. They've drawn at home with Tottenham, that's fair enough. Crystal Palace. Leicester and Liverpool. But their away form is brilliant. 18 away games, 11 wins, 4 draws, only the 3 defeats. And 2 of their away defeats were very early in the season. Southampton and Newcastle. Richarlison was suspended for both. Dini got sent off in the Southampton game. They've just been so bizarre this season. The other defeat was away to Chelsea when they, who were getting their new manager bump under Tuchel at the time. But they're such a Jekyll and Hyde team. Now, I know they've had a lot of injuries this season, but so have almost every, every other team in the league. United have been lucky with injuries. Chelsea have been pr- pretty lucky with injuries. And City have been lucky with injuries. Amazing that the three richest clubs have the strongest squads, isn't it? Um... I just can't work Everton out, though. I really can't work them out. How can you be so good away from home and so dreadful at home? They've scored the same amount of goals home and away, 23. Away, they've conceded 15. At home, they've conceded 28. It just makes no sense. Goodison is one of the tighter pitches in the Premier League. It should be easier to defend there. And sometimes with certain teams, if there's a you know a little bit of mental fragility, you'd say, oh, the pressure of playing at home and uh, the fan base get on their backs or whatever. 
but there's no fans at any game. So that doesn't work. There's no real attacking structure to the team. Uh, it's give it to Hamas, then give it to Dina, and then cross it into the box. That'll get worse if they do sign Phil Coutinho. It'll be give it to Phil, he'll dribble and then shoot from 30 yards, or give it to Phil, he'll dribble and then play it to Dina, who'll then cross it into the box. Carlo is one of the great managers ever. But he's never rebuilt a side before. And when he joined Everton, a rebuild is what was needed. Now, what he did was he went with a sort of win-now mentality and he brought in players who will affect them now. Alain, Decore, James. And then they brought in Ben Godfrey as well. And that's a long-term signing. And he's probably been the most successful of the four signings. Like the other three have all done well, but they've all missed substantial time through injury. Godfrey's made a real impact, and Godfrey probably has a strong case to go to the Euros. Now, I'd imagine Michael Keane will go because Southgate's an idiot, but Godfrey has done very, very well. But Alain and James are both in around 30. Decoury's late 20s. They're all players to win now. Unfortunately, West Ham aren't really in the position to win now. I, I bought the early season hype and I genuinely did think they could get top four. And again, like if their away if their home form was even close to their away form, they would have had a great opportunity. Because the league has been so weak this season. They are only eight points behind Chelsea. When you consider how bad their home form has been, there's a fairly easy eight points to find there. If they turn three of those defeats into victories at home, they're fourth. That would still be six home defeats. So it's not like I'm making them a good home team. It would only be eight home wins. That's still not a good home team. They had a real opportunity this season. And the home form has just killed them. Even with all of Liverpool's problems, Liverpool are still going to finish ahead of them. And Liverpool have been awful most of the season. It's one of the most bizarre things. Like I said with Carlo, he's not the type of manager you would associate with a rebuilding job. And I've seen some Everton fans begin to come out and criticise him. I think he, it's right now he deserves the criticism. He didn't deserve it a couple of months back when certain Everton fans who... I don't know, feel like their club should be winning titles or whatever, uh, were coming out and criticising him. But now he does deserve criticism, because when you're losing at home to Sheffield United, to an Aston Villa team who are dreadful and out of form, to a Burnley team who are, you know, scraping against relegation, scraping survival from relegation, to Fulham, to Newcastle who were shocking. I mean, there's... There's five games at home that they should have won. They couldn't score against Newcastle, couldn't score against Fulham, got one against Burnley, one against Villa, and couldn't score against Sheffield United. 
those five games define Everton's season. If they'd won three and drawn two, they'd be comfortable. If they'd won three and lost two, they'd be top four. Everton are missing out on top four because of Everton this year. And Carlo needs to make big decisions this summer. And I think they're going to have a big decision to make over Calvert-Lewin because I think there's a big offer coming for him. He, he among the draws, has had a good season. Uh, 21 goals in all competitions, 16 in the Premier League. Now, his first half of the season was much better than the second half of the season, but that's true for the whole team. But they are the ultimate Jekyll and Hyde team. They really could have done with a Charleston scoring more than six goals in the league. And then somebody else other than Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, and, and James popping up with more than three. Michael Keane has three. Gilfie, who they shouldn't really have had to play as much. James, who's missed a lot of time. They both get six along with Charleston. There's a lack of goals and there's too much Michael Keane in defence. They need a goalkeeper. They need a right back. They need one in midfield. And I think they should probably bring back Moise Keane and keep him and try and use him in certain games where they can play him and Calvert-Lewin up front. You can play Richarlison off a wing, Hammers off a wing, go with a front four. But they've got to, they've got to be more aggressive next season. They really do. Um... The reason I skipped, obviously, the other game. Oh, sorry. Sheffield United have two games left this season. Um, they play Newcastle away and then Burnley at home. They have 28 defeats. If they can avoid defeat in either, of the, sorry, in both those last two games, they will avoid taking the record for the most defeats in a Premier League season. They are now up to 20 points in the league they have six wins that's more than West Brom and Fulham uh, so congratulations to them for that 62 goals conceded that is the third worst in the league West Brom have the, the worst at 70 then Southampton at 63 and then Sheffield United and Newcastle on 62 Crystal Palace on 61 it's a lot of teams con conceding more than 60 goals that's an awful lot of teams Conceding more than more than sixty goals. Um, consider last season. And last season we had about the same. Um, right. Anyway, moving on. The second to last game of the weekend is the last game that we're going to talk about today, and that is West Brom one, Liverpool Football Club two. One of the most incredible ends to a game. You're ever likely to see. Hal Robson Canu had put West Brom 1 0 up. A mistake by Reese Williams and then Nat Phillips playing Canu onside by being inexplicably three yards behind the rest of the defence. Robson Canu runs on and a really tidy finish past Alison Becker for his first goal of the season. Uh, Mo Salah made it 1 1 on 33. Now, there's a little bit of controversy here, so we'll get to that. But Salah's finish on the turn, first time from 20 yards out into the bottom corner is absolutely to be lauded. It is a spectacular finish. It is the, the touch of a genius 
Uh, he is just such an incredible player. And him and Harry Kane lead the race for the Golden Boot this year. And obviously with Salah having a more favourable run-in, it probably does give him a bit of an edge. Now, there was controversy in the build-up. Fabinho had the ball, was moving forward, and the referee got in his way. What should have happened there is an uncontested drop ball. Instead, the referee gave Liverpool a free kick. It's basically the same thing. It is basically the same thing. However, West Brom's claim is that they didn't get themselves set. They, the game should have stopped. The drop ball should have taken place and they should have been back in position. Now, they won the ball back. Liverpool gave the ball away on the edge of the West Brom area. West Brom had a chance to clear their lines and failed to do so. Losing the ball, Sadio Mane won it back and then Salah scored. I will take the argument that there should have been a drop ball. However, you won the ball back and should have cleared it. So for all of Big Sam's crying after the game, he only has his own defenders to blame. They should have cleared the ball. West Brom thought they'd scored a second, midway through the second half. Corner kick. Ajayi clambers all over Fabinho. Very similar to the goal he scored at Anfield, actually. Hands all in his face, up on his shoulders. Downward header. Kyle Bartley runs on, taps it home. Completely ignored by Big Sam in his post-match crying was Matt Phillips standing in the middle of the six-yard box right in front of Alison Becker blocking his view of the ball as Ajayi headed it down. So he had no idea which direction the ball was going until it was too late. It's a blatant offside. It's one of the clearest offsides you'll ever see. It doesn't matter where Phillips was when Bartley made contact with the ball. It matters where... Phillips was when Ajayi makes contact with the ball. That's what matters. And Phillips is blocking the view of Alison Becker. It is a clear offside. And Darren Khan is the best, along with Sian Massey, he's the best referee assistant in the game. So if he calls it, it's right. VAR showed it. Dale Johnson's confirmed it. The picture from behind the goal, someone said to Dale Johnson yesterday, oh, you're being selective with the camera angle. It's the angle from behind the goal. It's the only one that actually matters. It's a blatant offside. It's a goal rightly ruled out. Liverpool looked like they'd thrown away top four after all their hard work to get back in it against Manchester United. It looked like they chucked it all away. Missed good chances. Sadio Mane had missed a chance. Ginny Wijnaldum had missed a good chance. Thiago had a couple of chances saved. Thiago was brilliant, by the way. Him and Trent Alexander-Arnold along with Fabinho, those three are dragging this team to top four. Dragging them there. Liverpool get a corner in the 94th minute, and Alisson Becker makes his way from goal. And you don't expect anything to happen, because normally when goalkeepers come up, the hope is that they just cause a bit of confusion, like, oh my God, you know, why is there a horse in my front garden? That kind of thing. Uh, instead... Alison Becker rises like a salmon from the water and heads the ball into the top corner of the net. It's a great cross from Trent from the corner. It's an incredible header. It's an incredible goal. It's worth pointing out that Nat Phillips may well have taken the ball off Alison's head if Sammy Ajayi doesn't shove him in the back as he jumps. So nice assist to Ajayi. It is a remarkable moment. It is. 
no less than Liverpool deserve. Liverpool deserve to win this game. There's no debate. 26 shots, 6 on target to 9 and 3 on target. 77% of the ball. Liverpool dominated the game, dominated the chances. They were by far the better team. They were by far deserving of a win. But to come from that source is incredible. Alison Becker in the 95th minute, it was one of the most bizarre things I've ever witnessed. Liverpool have never had a goal scored by a goalkeeper. Uh, Alison Becker now has a better goals per game ratio for Liverpool than Jamie Carragher does. That's not counting Jamie's own goals, obviously. Um, but I saw that that tweet yesterday and I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoy ending that kind of puts Carragher back in his place. Um, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic moment. And then you see the reaction afterwards. Alisson in tears, Thiago in tears, Firmino's emotional, Mo Salah's emotional, Liverpool players coming together. This is a team that have been through an incredible amount this season. Prior to this game, they lose Ozan Kabak and Diogo Jota to injuries for the rest of the season. So they're now out as well, along with Van Dijk, Gomez, Matip, uh, Henderson. We don't know when Milner's coming back. We don't know when Naby Keita is coming back, if he is. Uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is currently injured as well. Ben Davies is currently injured as well. Uh, Liverpool have 10 players currently injured and all unlikely to play in midweek. So, you know, it is difficult. They've got Burnley next. That's a difficult one away from home. But they do have a good record at Turf Moor. And I think coming off the back of that, I think we might see an inspired performance on Wednesday. Then it's Crystal Palace at home. Never easy. But you'd have to back them to do it. I think Liverpool are going to win their last two games. And that will likely mean that Liverpool finish in third or fourth position, depending on what happens with Chelsea. In all likelihood, they'll get fourth. The Chelsea-Leicester game on Tuesday night is massive. Massive. It defines the season for both teams in terms of Premier League. Whoever if one, whoever loses is, is going to be out of the top four. In all likelihood, whoever loses will be out of the top four. And you'd have to feel Chelsea might feel they've got a point to prove. Um, West Brom felt aggrieved. They had no real grounds to feel aggrieved. They've got West Brom, a West Ham at home and Leeds away. Uh, hopefully the last two games of Big Sam's tenure, because hopefully they'll they'll wish him well and send him on his way back down the River Gravy, uh, where he belongs. Uh, we will leave it at that. Uh, if I go on, I may well insult people. Um, thanks for listening, as always. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. And uh, thanks to Foxhound for the music. We will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.